You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. All right. We're on the return route back from Wimberley. We just climbed Man Maker Hill, which is like a vertical wall where you have to paperboy back and forth to get up it. There goes Emily. River jumped out of the car and ran down downtown Ember, Wimberley, which was a uh, scene. What's up? How's it going, dude? Are you enjoying taking me on this ride? Yes, sir. Car up. Yeah, this Fulton Ranch Road is insane. This is really cool. And we're about to go by the uh, the body farm where Texas State, I think, anthropology, whatever, they practice digging up cadavers. So I think they bury dead people and dead cyclists that didn't make it up. What's up? What's that hill we just climbed? Manmaker. Manmaker. It's really beautiful, lots of hills, insane views, lots of deer and cactus. This is what Spain looks like? This is exactly what Spain looks like. And it's actually not as hot because it's not as humid. We're way further inland, it's drier. Yeah. It's we're starting to get starting to get out of the humidity zone of the Gulf Coast. This is more dry. We're technically like semi-desert, right? I think. I have to look. Okay. The um, the green line of how f- how far west you can live and not need water. Like water naturally occurs everywhere, and the trees go from green to more scrubby brown. That line runs pretty much through Austin, north and south. So west of Austin, it starts to turn to desert. East of Austin, it starts to turn greener and greener. It's pretty cool. So we're on the edge. Which makes for drier riding conditions. Okay, just picking up wind, gonna get off the mic. Well, hey there, all you triathlon studs and studettes. And that was a little audio while on the bike when we went down to San Marcos, Texas to visit Kai and get in a couple long rides in one of the most amazing places in Texas. It's got hills. It's got flats. It's got spring-fed rivers that are the same temperature year-round. And it's a small to medium-sized college town with a lot going on between Austin and San Antonio. And it was a real treat to be there for the weekend. And what I have is a lengthy review of our weekend with all the things that we did so that you can check it out and know all the inside details in case you ever want to go there yourself. And we'll be going there more down the road. So if you want to learn more, just keep listening. But we'll get to that in a little bit. First, We have a ton of triathlon and endurance sports news. So here we go. 
first on the list, we had the men's portion of the Ironman World Championships this year held in Nice, France. And so far, it seems like it went down pretty great. The coverage was really good. They decided to do YouTube instead of Instagram or, or Facebook. The swim seemed pretty calm, and it was a non-wetsuit swim, which leveled the playing field a little bit. Because people that are not quite as fast of a swimmer usually benefit from having the wetsuit on because it lifts their legs up and streamlines them a little bit and helps them hold on and draft off of the more powerful swimmers. So no wetsuit swim. And I like that a lot, that it was a true swim. And then also what seemed to be like pretty good conditions. And then the bike ride was legit. Very hilly, technical, hard bike ride. And a lot of people predicted that that would slow down the overall time of the race because by the time the athletes got off the bike, oh, their legs hurt quite a bit. And then they got to run off that. Now then the marathon, it's really interesting. Dead flat, four laps up and down a promenade boulevard. Now in training, I don't like loops, but in racing, I definitely like multiple loops on the run because it allows you to pace yourself. Before the race even starts, you can plan out what your pace needs to be for the first lap. Let's say it's three laps or four laps, right? What's your pace for the first lap? And if you realize that you're going a little bit too hard, then you back off a lot and you get to know that before the race goes too far and you get too deep into a hole. And then for the next two, three laps, all you do is just try to make the same time you did on the first lap because that'll be hard enough. And people are talking a lot about how spectator friendly this race was. It's in France, which just had the Tour de France. So people here know how to come out and cheer and an interesting dynamic is the home field advantage. People tend to know the course better and also try harder if it's on home turf. And there was four Frenchmen, I suppose we would call it, in the top 10, which is unusual. And one of the stars of the race, Jan Ferdino, a German, announced that this was going to be his last pro race ever. And he went out pretty well. I think he got fifth. And everybody celebrated that, a real class act. But then the true star of the show was a young man named Sam Laidlow. Sam got second, I believe, at Hawaii last year. But then was, I believe, kind of quiet this year with race results. And also had COVID, I think, three weeks before this race. So it was very questionable how well he was going to do. And of course, there were a lot of other superstars there. But he managed to push through and become the youngest man ever to win the Ironman World Championships at only 24 years old. And there's a really special interview with him with Breakfast with Bob that you can, that you can catch, I believe, on YouTube. And he said some very interesting stuff that he wants to use, that he knows that once you win Ironman World Championships, you're kind of set for life. It's like winning a stage of the Tour de France or winning the Tour de France. You're famous and now you have a platform. And one of the things that he wants to promote is the fact that young people don't need to wait to get into endurance sports until they're old and too slow anymore. And I couldn't agree more. You don't have to get into endurance sports young, but if you feel like all the contact sports and or the short distance stuff is just burning you up, and a lot of us that played a lot of contact sports 
or the typical sports of youth that are pretty short in duration. By the time we graduate high school, our bodies have little injuries and little traumas. Like we've been through like 10 small car wrecks, <laughs> especially if you've played American football. But I grew up playing football, basketball, soccer, and then also swimming, a little bit of cross country, and even boxing. And Sam mentioned that, you know, if that kind of stuff's not for you, that he's proof that you can be great at endurance sports at kind of a young age. And the phrase that I love that he used is he said, you know, there's nothing wrong with going out on a three-hour bike ride. You don't have to go all that hard, right, for a three-hour bike ride to have a lot of benefit to your mitochondria. <laughs> and that's what made Bob laugh. He said, I don't think I've ever interviewed somebody that said mitochondria during the interview. But yeah, it's like good fitness. And there's a lot of people that start off with doing a triathlon or all three sports or some variation of the sports starting young. And there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. So check out that interview with Bob. That was really cool. And also I found that there is a video that I haven't completed watching yet. So I can't promise how good it is. But with Hoka TV, H-O-K-A, the running shoe company, Hoka TV did kind of like a day or a week with Sam Laidlow. So now that he's in the spotlight, you can actually check out where he lives, how he trains, a whole bunch of stuff like that. It's really cool. Hey, hey, I just wanted to interject something here. I went back and watched the video that I mentioned earlier, the Hoka TV video about Sam Laidlow's life and his training. You know, the guy that won the Ironman World Championships. And oh my God, you could not have a better example of somebody who has done lifestyle design, either on purpose, mostly his parents, on purpose, to choose a place that was conducive to success with endurance training and endurance sports and, and just the whole lifestyle. So he's in the south of France. His parents started a triathlon training camp and then just a few weeks or a few months into the triathlon training camp, they said, we need to quit doing a camp and just straight up live here, you know, <laughs> and then do the camp from here and make this our residence. And I forgot the name of the town, but the lifestyle that they've created for themselves is just absolutely amazing. And it's so easy to swim, bike, and run, and then also the community is really nice, and it's a pleasant place to live, and it's a smaller town, so there's less stress and less traffic, and the video has the family in there, the mom and the dad, and the dad's a coach, and the, the mom is the chef, and, and so forth, and, and he's got a younger brother living there, and it's just, everybody is so happy, and when I go on about San Marcos, Texas being a great place. And also where I live too is not that bad. College Station, Texas is a small university town where we have everything. And then when you hit the city limits, it's cattle and donkeys and Oreo cows and such. It's uh, really nice. We just don't have uh, good swimming around here is a big problem. And also it's a billion degrees in the summer. But otherwise, it's actually pretty great because of the stress and the, the availability of things to do, I should say the lack of stress, and the ability of things to do, and the whole town. There was an article one time years ago that said the town seemed to be trapped in the 1950s. 
<laughs> which in a good way where everybody's just living this, this lifestyle of small town. And it's regarded as one of these great places to live. Anyway, enough about College Station. We're talking about Sam Laidlow. And designing your lifestyle is a series of choices you make over the years. And at first, it's frustrating. And then they start to add up. For example, like I've had job offers in big cities and work jobs in big cities that are really stressful with long commutes. And uh, when I started working here, I said, no, I'm done with that. And as more job offers came up, that were bad like that for the lifestyle that I wanted to live. I was like, nah, we're not going to do that. But really my point is if I can do it, if Sam Laidlow can do it and you want to be successful like him, then you can do it too. And it doesn't have to be about endurance sports, triathlon or anything like that. It's about whatever you want in life. You want to live in a food city with all kinds of really cool foods. Uh, Houston's actually really great for that. And wherever you want to live, you know, look for the features that you want. But one thing, I mean, for sure, is if you want to be happy in life and less stressed, and that allows you to uh, get live the better life that you want, then definitely look at the density of a city, the walkability, the bikeability, uh, the mass transit, and the um, crime rate, the economy. There's a whole lot of things. They actually have a scale called the happiness index where they compound all these things together come up with a formula and can tell you for example that like uh, Norway the Scandinavian countries are generally the happiest places to live and negative people will say well the tax rate's so high socialists yeah but <laughs> you get a uh, some nice payoffs from that you get universal health care which I've experienced in Spain it was pretty great and free college, much more open use of the land, a whole culture that's not just about barely surviving and dog eat dog. And I don't do politics on this show, but basically what I found is it's all a wash. You know, you pay higher taxes, you get more stuff. You pay lower taxes, you have to pay for more stuff yourself. Really, you should be looking at things more like climate and again, the economy of an area, job prospects, and livability of a city. And a really interesting thing is major research university towns that are kind of out by themselves are rated in the United States as the happiest places to live because you have all the resources and intellect and smart decisions being made of a big city, but in a small city environment. And cities like that are Auburn, Alabama, College Station, Texas, Boulder, Colorado, uh, San Luis Obispo, I think is number one. Caltech, I believe, is there. And now we got another one on our list. San Marcos, Texas, Texas State. We left the city limits. <laughs> Dude, there's nothing. <laughs> it's great. But it is a very short hop from Austin and San Antonio. But anyway, watch that video. And they're just sitting around talking about it. Of course he became an incredible triathlete. He was surrounded by incredible people doing incredible stuff, and it was just part of the fabric of his everyday life. And yeah, there's, there's talent and genetics mixed in with that. But regardless, he would have been a, a, a decent triathlete. But it just goes to show your environment means everything. And they designed it themselves. It's really cool. Check it out. All right, back to the show. And in... 
probably four weeks, we're going to have the women's world championships, and they are going to do that one in Hawaii. So it'll be very exciting when that happens. All right, next, Keegan Swenson, the gravel lord, has won yet another gravel race. This was Gravel Nationals in Nebraska. I believe it was about 160 miles. Not quite sure on that. But because it's in North America, it's the de facto and unspoken gravel world championship is what everybody's saying. There is a gravel world championship, a UCI one in um, Italy. They had it last year. And I did one of the qualifiers for it in Arkansas. I'll go back a few shows. You can check that out. Interesting thing about Keegan is he rides a Santa Cruz. I believe it's a Stigmata. And he is far above and beyond the fastest and best gravel racer. But what's interesting about that bike is it's not really a very aerodynamic bike. In fact, I don't think so whatsoever. And it started off as a cyclocross bike, I think in 2014. And over the years, it has morphed into more and more and more of basically a mountain bike with drop bars. Longer bike geometry, slacker head tube angle, makes it way more confidence inspiring when you're going downhill. Just like modern mountain bikes, you're more in the bike instead of on top of it. Longer wheelbase, so you're more in it instead of on top of it. And there's a cool trick that they play with mountain bikes is they stretch the bike way out, but then they shorten the stem really short. And what that does is it makes it effectively turn faster than would with the regular stem on it. So even though the bike's longer and more stable, when you do decide you want to turn, it actually turns pretty quick, like it should. So the effect is it's more like it turns when you want it to, not when the surface that you're riding over tries to make it turn, which leads you to crash. So that's a very interesting bike. And it's really cool to see gravel bikes adopt more and more of a mountain bike or just transform in all kinds of different directions as we figure out the sport because it is evolving quickly. And a lot of people do really well on mountain bikes with drop bars. Now, Kai and I both ride bikes from this company called Vast, V-A-A. I don't want to say too many A's. It's two A's, V-A-A-S-T, Vast. And they are wonderful. We absolutely love them. They started selling right before and during the pandemic. And their frames are made out of magnesium. And what's cool about them is magnesium has a dampening effect naturally. So it takes the chatter out of the vibration of the road on gravel. And then also magnesium is super light and super strong. It's like the claim to fame is it's almost as light as carbon fiber and almost as cheap as aluminum. And it's stronger than steel, stronger than titanium, and has the ride quality even better than probably the best carbon fiber. So for a pretty cheap price, just a tad more than aluminum, you're getting the ride quality of the best carbon fiber and, and also the lightness of kind of medium grade or entry level carbon fiber, but for a great price because magnesium comes from seawater. <laughs> like one cubic meter of seawater has enough magnesium in it to make a bike frame, something like that. And then you can recycle it really easy, really easily, which is another claim to fame of magnesium. I reached out to Vast to get a I reached out to Vast to get an interview with them. I hope I'm hoping it happens because I'd love to talk about it more. Those bikes are fantastic. We really like them. 
But then let's get back to Keegan and Gravel Nationals in Nebraska. What about the women's race? We have a female pro road cyclist that I think did about 10 years over in Europe and is now racing gravel. Lauren Stevens, she races for Education First, EF, the pink team. And both Keegan and Lauren and so many other top gravel racers are examples of the spirit that we initially saw in sports like Ironman, where you're a fantastic athlete, but the pro environment, let's say for cycling around Europe, is not a healthy living environment. And you're constantly told what to do, where to go, what to race, where to race. And you're on a team and you're in a bus everywhere and you don't get to have your own life. And this development over time of, like I said, Ironman, where athletes are their own person and you just use some social media and some exposure, like Lionel Sanders is a great example. And you can kind of create your own career and be way more in charge of yourself and live more where you want to and do the races and actually get by and enjoy it. Keegan and Lauren are great examples of this. And then our next news item, speaking of doing your own thing, yet being on a team, Education First, EF, is Lachlan Morton. He just finished riding the entire Tour Divide and beat the record by at least a day, I believe. I think more, like a day and a half. And the course starts a healthy distance into Canada, and it goes south. You can do it either way. There's records for each direction. But a lot of people do it in Canada, and then they ride south along pretty much the Continental Divide, mostly off-road, mostly gravel roads with a little bit of mountain bike trails mixed in, but mostly gravel roads. And it is brutal because they go all the way down the Rocky Mountains through New Mexico and hit the insane desert of southern New Mexico and finally hit Antelope Wells right outside of Mexico itself. Most people, I think it takes like three weeks easily. And he did it in like half that time. I think if you wanted to enjoy yourself, it'd probably take four to five weeks. And there's always crazy weather up north with uh, rain. And if it rains anywhere, it's going to turn into peanut butter mud in some places. There's grizzly bears at the northern at the northern end of this thing. There is snow sometimes. Depends on what time of year you do it. Well, there's almost always snow. And I think one night he was scared to death because there was lightning strikes hitting at high altitude all around him and there was nowhere to go. But Lachlan rides for EF, which is a Tour de France, you know, pro team, the pink team. And he was in the World Tour 2014, 2016, I think. And he grew sick of it. So he's a highly qualified cyclist, but he's just like, this is not for me. And then he just started doing weird events and was, of course, doing really well at them. Somehow, EF had the insight to keep him on the team. And also his brother is a filmmaker. So his brother would film him and then got a filming company going and was able to document and then spread over social media and YouTube his adventures as he was doing these crazy races all over the place that you don't hear about all that much. And with the attention, and also Lachlan has like this magnetic, wonderful attitude. It's just so chill and relaxed and cool. He just has like this aura of cool. This type of thing really took off and he's still with EF, and there was even a film crew on the Continental Divide course, 
It's called actually the Tour Divide. And an interesting thing to know is he actually won't get the official record, even though he broke the record by a good margin, because to hold the record or take the record and for it to be official, you have to have no outside assistance. And what's crazy is even if your film crew doesn't help you whatsoever, which I think they probably stayed out of the way almost entirely, the fact that you have anybody there documenting what you're doing is considered an artificial aid. And in a way, that's sort of true. You can see how like, you know, a crowd cheering you can motivate you to go a little bit further or having people with you makes you feel not so alone. And I think that's what really gets to people on these things. Ted King just tried doing it. He's a former tour writer, Tour de France writer, and he dropped out. And I think you just get alone and you get scared. You start having physical problems. <laughs> start Feet start swelling, start blistering. Uh, you hear bears at night and mountain lions and you're bonking and you don't know where you are so much anymore and you're freezing to death. And then you're burning up and it's just all over the place and you feel really, really alone and that weeds some people out. So while Lackland won't get the official record, it seems, there is a documentary film being made of his experience, which I think we'll all see pretty soon. And we can be the judge of whether the, the fastest time, if they didn't help him hardly at all or at all, and they just kind of stayed out of the way and filmed him, then he'll have the unofficial record, which we can use as a gauge of like, how fast can it be done? And also the nice side effect of these kinds of things is when you see, when you see somebody do something amazing, and you see how they did it, you can see where they did something different than what you're doing, which I think is the huge value in things. It's not, you know, to break the record and go so fast. That in itself is kind of like, okay, great. But how they did it and then sharing that knowledge and to realize what you're doing wrong is helpful to everybody and all kinds of things in life. Okay, last news item is UTMB Ultra Marathon was won by Courtney DeWalter, and that gives her the triple crown. She has won the three biggest, hardest ultra marathon in one year. So she won Western States 100, which is the biggest. It's called the Super Bowl. It's not by any means the hardest, but it's the biggest, and it's the most famous. So it has the highest level of competition. So to win that one means you got to be super fast. And then she won Hard Rock, which is in Colorado, and that is considered one of the hardest ultramarathons in North America with just the sheer vertical gain and high altitude. Uh, I've been on that course in a way. I've been backpacking in that area many times in my life, and some of it goes like around. I've been at the start line, actually. Silverton, Colorado, kind of Durango, Durango uh, Uray, things like that. It's... Uh, scary when you're on top of one of the peaks and looking around you and you see what the terrain is like. It's really scary. Like you worry that if you just went um, a mile off course, you might not make it back. And how anybody can run that is just mind blowing besides just hiking it, let alone just hiking it. So she won that. And then UTMB, I believe is in France. Let me look up the location and what is this UTMB? UTMB is in the French Alps, and it stands for Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc, and is 106 miles. 
circumnavigating Mont Blanc, the highest mountain in Western Europe. And for an American to win that, that is a big deal. So congratulations, Courtney. Amazing work. And that wraps up our triathlon and endurance sports news. And there will always be more coming up next episode. And before we get into the training log and talking about San Marcos, I want to mention something in our moment of Zen. Now, if you're a longtime listener to Zen and the Art of Triathlon, you notice that I talk a lot about productivity. Triathlon's really hard to get done, so you need to master productivity as well. You want to be effective with not being overwhelmed, especially when you're training for three sports and usually having a full-time job to pay for those three sports. And then everything else going on in your life and the life of people around you, it gets to be a lot. And I just noticed there's an article in the Wall Street Journal, of all places, that concisely describes what I have been talking about for years. I even gave a talk about it at the local university. And it's titled, Try Hard, But Not That Hard. 85% is the magic number for productivity. And what they talk about in the article is something that I've talked about here with coworkers, bosses, people that I manage, when I see them trying to do too much. And I tell them that I'm an Ironman coach, have been for years, and what I learned from Ironman coaching, and I also learned this from Zen practice, I started applying it to work, and it turns out it's very effective, and it works. And in the article, they use the same example that I use. They say, athletes aim for 85%. If they train too hard or they aim for perfection, they get burned up. And over time, this is training, over time, aiming for 85%, either effort or success, and taking little breaks and rest and recover is so important that it'll keep you actually more productive over time, and then you'll have a lot happier and more successful work life. And just reading part of the article here, there's a lot of inconsequential stuff that goes into going 100%, says this guy, exercise physiologist who coaches executives. That's what you're getting right here on Zentri for free, by the way. And athletes on performance. When we care too much, it becomes like an existential crisis. Sometimes the harder we try, the worse we get. Injuring ourselves or choking under pressure. And they're saying quit while you're ahead. Uh, quit while you're ahead. And the sense that your whole self-worth isn't wrapped up in this one moment can actually make you more likely to nail it. And then the example that they use is a really good one for work. The guy had a big presentation with PowerPoint slides and it had 10 slides. Two of the slides didn't work. And he's like, well, I got 80% of them. Did that two slides really matter that much? I'll just tell the people what the slides actually said. He remained chill about it, got through the presentation and actually made them look kind of cool and relaxed that it didn't bother him. Kind of like Lachlan Morton, I bet. If a task is too hard, humans get demotivated. So a flow state is when you're doing a task that is just the right amount of challenge for you, where it engages you and you feel like you're doing something and you're kind of good at something, but it needs to be just challenging enough. 80 to 85% is that magic number. If you're already amazing at something, it's not enough of a challenge. And then if it's too hard, you feel dumb or something and uh, you give up. So the trick is to have the wisdom to know when to stop and take a break or realize that that's enough projects on your to-do list this week. It's just 80% of what you would. It's also, you know, now that I think about it, it's a lot like that rule of 
whenever you try to give somebody a time estimate at work of how long something's going to take, you should probably double it, maybe even triple it of what you think it should take, right? So I make these type of reports at work, right? And usually it'll take me, or I should say it could take me just an hour or two to make one of these. But honestly, it's going to take three days <laughs> when I think about it. <laughs> you should double it and then double it again, obviously, uh, because stuff interrupts your and to think that it doesn't is kind of irrational. Yeah, you could mow your yard in 30 minutes, but actually you're probably going to take a break, cool down and then go back out again. And then there's the little things, you know, all right, I'm going to go ahead and use the 80 to 85% rule and say that our moment of Zen is good enough. And we're going to move on to the training log. Now, between just you and me, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I do geography for work. And I got two geography degrees, uh, but they're all science-based degrees with a lot of earth science and geomorphology and geology. I, I got these degrees at one of the top major research universities in the United States. So when I go into a little bit too much detail about San Marcos and how and why it is the way it is and what's unique about it. I'm not just making it up <laughs> and I'm not just guessing. I actually had to learn this stuff. And the other important thing I had to learn is that this stuff matters. Geography is not about memorizing the names of capitals of the states. It's learning how to understand why they are where they are. It's not learning that the Mississippi is the biggest river in why is it the biggest river in the United States? Because if you learn the why behind things and the how, then it gives you a greater insight into new situations that we come across. And if you know the why and how of the land around you and what makes you happy living in the place that you live or what makes you happy about the place that you would like to live, you can pick it apart and find those things maybe in pieces, kind of here and there or all together in a place somewhere else that could be really surprising. There's a reason why San Diego was the first triathlon mecca of the United States. And then gradually it evolved into Boulder. And then it gradually was moving in the Austin direction. And then Austin kind of went off the map as far as a triathlon destination. And so did San Diego as a place for triathletes to live and be su successful at the sport. And it's gone more back to Boulder again. But all that being said, you could see why San Marcos might be a very interesting place to spend some time and know a little bit more about. So let's go ahead and jump into the training log and check it out. Here we go. Hey, how would you like to become an endurance monster? Get coached for your next big endurance event by yours truly, Coach Brett from Zentri. For only $1.99 a month, I build you a completely custom triathlon training plan using the industry's gold standard training platform. With Training Peaks, you can easily go online, see what your workouts are, then upload your results seamlessly that very same day. Then I build your next training block based on how you've been doing. I review every single workout and provide comments on what I'm seeing that you've done great and where we need to improve. If you want to get faster, better, stronger, and be able to go longer, don't do it alone. Reach out to me and we can work together with my depth of experience and get you to the finish line as fast as possible. Send me an email, texafornia at gmail.com. That's T-E-X-A 
F-O-R-N-I-A, Texafornia at gmail.com and put coaching in the subject line. See you at the start line. You are entering the Zentrite training log zone. Hi everybody, my name is Brett, I'm a trap. I decided it's time I got some friends more suited to my status. But Joe, we've been friends for years. Hey, we all make mistakes. Come on dudes, let's go exercise! Exercise! I'm gonna do sit-ups till I poop myself! Hello, hello. All right, welcome to a new training log. It is Labor Day, September, what is it, the 3rd? 4th in 2023. And we are back from an awesome weekend in San Marcos. We went Friday night and then came back last night and we did a whole bunch of adventuring there. So I'm going to go over it real quick. I'm sure I talked about it in general uh, at the beginning of the show. So But just to recap, it is a hidden jewel on the edge of the Texas Hill Country. It's halfway between San Antonio and Austin. It's a small town where Texas State University is located, and that's where Kai's going to school now. And another cool thing to know is that, geographically speaking, the Hill Country, I believe, is ancient fossilized coral reef from a shallow ocean, you know, millions of years ago. And that makes for limestone. And the pockets of limestone, some are more limestone than others and erode faster than others or creeks will will, uh, chew through it faster than other spots and rivers will chew through it faster than other spots. Uh, Limestone reacts uh, very easily to acid. You can tell limestone in a geology class by dripping a little bit of, usually it's like, maybe carbonic acid or something, and it'll fizz. So that makes for the terrain to be carved sharply with big drops and steep walls of where creek channels and rivers have cut through it. And then also, because it's elevated west of I-35 that connects Austin to San Antonio, for example, and all the way up to Waco, The water that penetrates the limestone there filters out eventually out of the edge of the hill country in different spots. And one of those spots is San Marcos. And the San Marcos River and just to the south of it, the Kamal River, are famous for coming right out of the edge of the hill. And it's a river coming out of the (laughs) edge of the hillside. It's almost mountainous. It's very steep, rugged hills, which makes it... uh, If you were from Houston, you would think these were mountains. But anyway, because the water coming out of the springs, out of the sides of the hill country right there where San Marcos is and New Braunfels, it's also very German, by the way, New Braunfels, Fredericksburg, a lot of towns like that have heavy German heritage. And again, the rivers coming out are spring-fed right there along the edge. And because they're spring-fed out of the aquifer underneath the limestone it's the water is 72 degrees year round out of these two and it's wonderful in the summer 
and it provides pretty even river flow. So even in the drought right now, the Aqua Arena Springs area, which is on the corner of the San Marcos campus, they have mermaid shows, or they used to have mermaid shows. There's statue mermaids around town in San Marcos. It's really funny and cute. And also, that's how much the the town relies on the on the fame of these of these uh, rivers and springs that come out. And then the Blanco River is actually a river that starts. I don't know how many miles further upstream from San Marcos, but let's say like ninety miles. And the Blanco River. Use goes by what used to be the scout camp that I grew up going to. Emily's dad actually helped build the scout camp. It's called El Rancho Sima. My brother went to uh, both of us for eight years. Emily worked there a couple summers. Emily's brother went there eight years and worked there. My nephew worked there and went there. And it's El Rancho Sima is like one of the most beautiful places on earth, and it's just west of San Marcos, but. The land is so valuable now with the spread of development that uh, the Boy Scouts ended up selling the ranch, which was a tragedy to most people that I know. I cannot believe that they sold that ranch because it had the Blanco River run right through the middle of it. And for eight years of my life, every summer, I would swim in the Blanco River every day as it would go by. Campsite one is the campsite that, that our troop had every summer with uh, rope swings coming off the cypress trees. It's just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful and rugged and hilly. And yeah, so anyway, the Blanco River continues past San Marcos. And in San Marcos, the San Marcos River, which is a spring-fed river, again, at 72 degrees, joins the Blanco River and cools the Blanco River back down again. And if the, if the Blanco River is running low like I'm sure it is right now. Yeah, it was running low. We, uh, yeah, it was running very, very low. Uh, we crossed it a couple times on one of these bike rides I'm going to tell you about. The San Marcos River adds volume back to it. And then just downstream of that is a few more access points where you can get in and swim, which I'll talk about in a minute. But anyway, we thought that family weekend was this weekend. And we made a hotel reservation, paid extra for the room with that'll allow us to bring a dog and we were going to bring river with us. And after doing all that, as we got closer to the weekend and then the date came and went where we could not any longer uh, get a refund on our room and cancel it. We found out my mom actually texted me and said, Hey, (laughs) I think she called me said, Hey, the family weekend thing. Have you actually checked the date on that again? Check that again. It turns out it's in October. But it's too late. We've already paid for all this. So we're like, well, we're going anyway. And so we had our own family, unofficial family weekend at Texas State with Kai and got to see him settled into his apartment a little bit more and then did all this uh, bike riding and, and uh, well, mountain biking and checking out the rivers again and getting to see the town a little bit more. And so that's the backdrop of what I'm going to tell you about. So we left Friday night. And arrived at this hotel. Oh, and the reason I'm telling you all this is so that if you ever want to go, this starts giving you kind of an insider view of visiting San Marcos and how epic it is for biking and hiking. I don't know about uh, swimming per se, except in the Blanco River, that one place that we went to, I swam in place easily. 
but uh, I don't know how long I would actually do that. Kind of like an endless pool. You can just sit there in place. I've done that in the Komal River too, down by New Braunfels. You can just swim in place, but it's not really something that people do. You'd be kind of weird if you did that. But if I did live on one of those rivers, I would totally do that. <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> Have my own endless pool in my backyard with spring-fed water. It'd be pretty cool. Oh, and along the rivers, there's these tubing places where you, it's a Texas thing, especially in the summer in the heat, you go and rent tubes at a tube rental place and then you uh, go down and then they pick you up further down the river and, and then they pick you up in a bus and collect the tubes and then you get back in your car and go. And uh, it's a whole mix of stuff like people uh, drink a lot while they're going on the river sometimes. Uh, you can rent tubes that have a hard plastic bottom on them. So if you hit rocks and stuff, that um, it doesn't scrape your butt. Like they've got it down to a science. It's really cool. And then also Texas State is a major university. It is 37,000 people. It's the same size as LSU, which made me feel a whole lot better about it when I found that out because I'm so used to Texas A&M and University of Texas, which are both 65 something thousand people uh, per university and each. And I feel like those are just way too big. And even 30,000 something, you know, is too big, but that's kind of what it takes to have a major university where you have all the little colleges built into the university and you can get a big spectrum education from all the different sciences and liberal arts and all that. Anyway, so Kai had been taunting me before we got down there saying that I was going to die on the hills and to get ready. And it was so hilly. It was so brutal. And all this stuff, right? And both that made me really excited because one, that made me know that he was excited that I was coming and to ride with him. He still wants me to ride with him and show me, you know, cool cycling stuff, which is great. But then the other thing that's funny is Kai doesn't remember. He was too young to remember all of the insane hilly stuff that I used to ride and run for races all over the United States. And being that College Station's only mildly hilly, it's kind of rolling prairie, I would actually seek out like super hilly stuff and do hill. If I found a hard hill, I would do hill repeats. I've done so many races in the Texas hill country that I know exactly what it's like. And also during the pandemic, I didn't record a bunch of shows, but we did a ton of mountain bike racing. And a lot of the races were in the hill country. Now, what Kai does remember is that over the pandemic, I put on a bunch of weight <laughs> and I'm still fighting, taking it off. It takes a lot of discipline and a lot of time to work that off and a lot of rebuilding of good habits. And so he can drop me on a hill climb like it's nobody's business. And I just, I, there's nothing I can do about it, you know, and that's what he's actually used to. And on level ground, he and I are the exact same speed. And then on a downhill, I'm actually faster, but you don't gain a lot of time on a downhill. You gain a lot of time on an uphill while you're dropping somebody that's way heavier than you are. And that's what Kai does. And then the other thing that Kai remembers is, he definitely remembers is that he is a mountain biker first and he is incredible at it. And when the roads turn into trails and it's real mountain biking, he drops me so fast. I am so much slower than him. And it's really frustrating. But again, it is what it is. And I've learned to just ride by heart rate, right? Because 
all the years of Ironman training, I've been doing, um, you know, you pace yourself because you always got to run off the bike. So you just pace yourself, pace yourself. And if the ride is long enough, it ends up paying off, which actually it did on Saturday on this epic ride that we went on. And as a reminder note, we're going to do in a future podcast, because we're probably going to do some this, this fall and winter, a marathon mountain biking. I didn't cover any of the marathon mountain biking races I did during the pandemic, and they were insane. And what I found is I, I really love mountain biking. I always have. I was mountain biking when it was first getting super popular in the early 90s, and I just loved being in the woods and out there with nature and the just totally different attitude compared to being on pavement. Every, everybody's just like so chill and relaxed. It's awesome. Oh, yeah, like I got 10th at Half Ironman Austin, <laughs> which is hill country vertical. Right. So I'm not bad at that stuff if I'm at uh, racing weight. And a whole bunch of my, well, my very first ever longer triathlon was at Marble Falls, which is in the Texas Hill Country. And then I did the Bernie Half Ironman race like three times, which is insanely steep. And then I think my first ever Half Ironman was outside of Lubbock. And they used the edge of one of these escarpments. At Buffalo Springs Lake, it's one of the oldest Ironmans, half Ironmans out there. Crazy. I remember hitting 50 miles per hour on a downhill for the first time in my life, looking at a bike computer going, uh, I wonder who put this bike together and if they knew what they were doing, because <laughs> I sure don't. And it was just nuts. So I have a huge history of riding super vertical stuff. It's just got to go slow if you're going to make it to the end, especially if you're new on a course. And Kai's already ridden this a few times and he wanted to take me out on it. But one smart thing I did was Thursday night, I did not go for a bike ride. I ran Thursday morning, but that's not quite the same as riding a bike. And I did not ride Thursday night. And then I swam Friday morning. And Friday morning, I put in a really good swim, a 126 pace for 4,000, almost 200 yards. So just a hair under a full Ironman distance swim, did a 126 pace. Uh, per 100 yards. So just that if I was doing a full Ironman, it would have taken me like an hour and one minute to do a full Ironman at that pace. So that was really cool. Uh, Getting my training back on track and results are starting to come in. And then Friday, worked all day, uh, but did uh, leave an hour early, got to the house, loaded up the bikes that we were going to take. So Emily's mountain bike, my mountain bike, and uh, my gravel bike and lubed all the chains on the bike because we use squirt lube and squirt's a wax-based lube and you really want to lube your chain the day before. So loaded them up. And also I need to mention that Zentri is a multimedia experience. (laughs) So it's not just the podcast, but if you go to Instagram, you can see short videos of what we're doing. And I do those to supplement the podcast. And you can see my mountain bike. I have a Canyon Neuron which isn't a cross-country mountain bike. I had an Orbea Alma hardtail, which was a cross-country racing mountain bike. But once you've had a hardtail once in your life, and I've had one long ago, it's hard to ever go back to a hardtail. And as I was doing marathon mountain biking and realizing that was something that I just absolutely loved, those races are 44 miles long. 
So depending on your speed, you're talking three, four, five hours, and also depending on the course. And that long at race pace on a hardtail mountain bike can really beat you up. For example, I was doing a race in Huntsville, and it's real rooty there. And the announcer goes, oh, there's a guy on a hardtail. And I was like, oh, man, (laughs) that's a sign. I'm going to take that as a sign. I need to get a full suspension. And it's a great bike. It's it's like a mid-grade component-wise mountain bike, except I added electronic shifting to it because I was so frustrated with my shifting being off all the time at one point that I just got electronic shifting for it. I'm not a huge proponent of electronic shifting on any bike besides a triathlon bike. I think that that's something that is a safety thing because on a triathlon bike, if you want to shift, you have to take your hands off the brakes and move your hand way out in front of you to the tips of the arrow bars and shift if you have manual shifting, mechanical shifting on a, mount, on a triathlon bike. And that is dangerous a lot of the times. Uh, say you're going into a turn and you want to change gears, well, you have to take your hands off of the, the bullhorns and the brake. So you're losing stability, riding with one hand uh, and reaching way out in front of you, which messes up your center of gravity to shift. And that's exactly why I recommend electronic shifting for triathlon bikes, 100%. Beyond that, mechanical shifting is so good that on regular road bikes, gravel bikes with aero bars and mountain bikes, um, mechanical shifting is usually just fine. And it's lighter, I think. And then you don't have to charge a battery all the time. Anyway, in one of the Instagram videos, you can see my Canyon Neuron, what it looks like. And in future episodes, as we talk about marathon mountain biking, I'll review the bigger races that I've done. I did the Cactus Cup twice in Arizona, which is a three-day stage race. Uh, And day two of that is uh, like 42, 44 miles mountain bike. So that's marathon mountain biking. I did one in Fredericksburg. I did that twice, by the way, uh, for two years in a row. And then um, Fredericksburg, marathon mountain biking, Warda, they do a race where they go from, I've done that, the Fredericksburg one several times now and love it. And then the race in Warda, Texas, which is near LaGrange, it goes from Warda to Smithville where they filmed Hope Floats with Julia Roberts. And then back again, there's two different mountain bike parks with like say 30 miles in between them. And you do one lap of the mountain bike park and Warda, and then you ride a mix of pavement and gravel to the other mountain bike park, do a lap of that, and then ride back 30 miles to the first mountain bike park that you started at, and then ride a half lap of that. And that's like in January or February. It's absolutely brutal. It's called the excruciation exam, and that thing's like 70 miles, 80 miles, something like that. It is insane. And... It's one of the only races I've ever seen where people put aero bars on their mountain bikes because when you go between the different race courses, the mountain bike courses, yeah, that's gravel bikeable, even road bikeable, maybe. Kind of depends on the gravel that day. But when you hit the mountain bike courses, it's real mountain biking. So if you were riding a gravel bike, I tried riding a gravel bike, my gravel bike at one of those mountain bike courses one time. And it was so sketchy and dangerous that the amount of time that I would have lost, I did some math. Uh, I was like 10 minutes slower easily, maybe more. I think it was like 12 minutes uh, 
doing one lap on my gravel bike versus my mountain bike. And then I did the math, the calculations of the distances and all that. And I was like, it would, it'll be a wash. And then I'd end up exactly the same speed, either bike that I rode. But then on the mountain bike, I would be safer on the mountain bike course. And I just slapped some arrow bars on the mountain bike and rode that, done that twice. And I can't remember where else I've done marathon mountain bike races specifically. But you can Google it. Marathon mountain biking is an actual thing and they have the world championships. It is legit. It's so cool because what they do is they go for distance instead of extremes and they take out a lot of the worst drops and jumps that have been added into uh, mountain biking lately over the, over the years. As mountain bikes have gotten better, you know, they're making the, the courses harder and harder. Some of the stuff's absolutely crazy. And most people do marathon mountain biking are older and they don't have speed anymore, but they have just a ton of endurance and they're not interested in breaking their necks. So they want to ride cross country mountain biking, but without big drops and I don't know, just ridiculous stuff that's super dangerous. And so marathon mountain biking ends up being like wonderful for somebody like me who wants to do mountain biking with Kai, but I have this huge background in ultra distance stuff and regular mountain bike races are too short. They're like an hour, hour and a half. And also they're a little bit dangerous, you know, and as a 49, well, I was like 47 when I started doing these 47, 48, 49, 50. They're just like, they're, they're nuts. Some of the, some of the race courses and they're at super high speed because they're shorter. Uh, but what I have done is some of the short mountain bike races that I've done with Kai, I signed up for Cat 1 and Cat 2 because they'll do extra laps, right? Because they're so fast. And I've done these races like all over, um, let's see, all the way Oklahoma, northern Louisiana, and yeah, Texas, and again, um, Arizona. And you don't have to qualify up to sign up for Cat 1 or Cat 2. You can just race it. And the extra laps add on more miles. So I found myself doing like 30-something miles, maybe. And coming in like in Cat 1, definitely coming in and like dead last or second to last, like if somebody had a flat tire. <laughs> had a mechanical. Uh, cat 2 and Cat 3, I can actually uh, beat some people. And over the years, as I, as I race, I got faster and faster and really enjoyed it. And Kerrville is actually kind of what really reminded me of San Marcos. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, get back to that. We got to our hotel and we did not tell Kai that we had River with us. We wanted it to be a surprise. And it was so late by the time we got there, it was around midnight, that uh, we said we would just meet him in the morning. And did he come over in the morning to us or we go to, to him? I can't remember. Uh, we eventually went to him. And um, rolled down the window of the truck and River stuck his head out the window. And Kai was so happy that we brought River with us. It was so nice. And River's our big black uh, German Shepherd mix that we got as a puppy. Uh, he's a pandemic puppy. And um, he's very attached to Kai. It was very sweet. And we outlined the route that we were going to ride, which was going to go really close to El Rancho Sima, the Boy Scout Ranch. But we're going to leave from San Marcos, go up from prairie level up through the San Marcos campus to te the Texas state campus up the side of the, the beginning of the hill country up these 
escarpments and then ride up and down about an hour and a half to Wimberley, Texas. And then that's where she was going to meet us. And then there's a gas station there that the cycling group stops at. But we also gave Emily some of our own water and stuff like that so that when she met up with us, she would uh, be able to resupply us. She'd be able to re-up us with our stuff and then kind of I would ride back. So it was like a really long lollipop. So I think we got going around 8, 8.30 in the morning. And Kai's showing me his bike ride from his apartment. He has to go by campus. And I'm like, is this, is this the way you go to school? Is this, you know? <laughs> He's like, yeah, basically. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And big props to gravel bikes. They make the best riding the campus bikes ever because you get high speed whenever you can, right? So you're on a road and uh, you can make some good time. And then when you actually hit some curbs and some other stuff that you got to go over, go through some parking lots to cut stuff short, maybe go down. You can even go downstairs on a gravel bike. I wouldn't do that much though. But um, they're not really made for that. They're just like the most awesome urban road bikes. Yeah, I think if I was like a, a bike messenger or a delivery guy, I would have a gravel bike for sure for all the concrete furniture you got to go up and over. Anyway, we ride up to the uh, top of San Marcos and Kai just keeps saying like, what do you think, huh? What do you think about how steep it was? And I'm like, dude, this is legit. This is, it's as steep as you get. Like it's, it's not that the hills are like super long. They're, you know, a few minutes long because they're not mountains. You know, you don't get like a 20 minute climb. You get like a 10 minute climb. It's one of my longest climbs. And yeah, let me look at it real, real quick. I've got it actually right here. Yeah, like a 12 minute climb was the worst climb. And it was elevation gain of 300 and something feet in 12 minutes. Um, it's called Manmaker Hill, and at one point on it, it's 17% grade and averaged like 14% grade. And that's like the edge of these escarpments, right, carved out by the rivers. They are just super vertical. It's the same kind of terrain that you would see further west Texas where like plateaus, you know how plateaus are flat on top and then the edges just drop off like a sheer cliff. Same kind of thing. Just a little bit more rounded off. The, the mesas and the plateaus aren't as big, aren't as defined and not as flat on top. They're more like rounded on top. Oh, and by the way, you can go look at this ride on my Strava. I'm Brett Blankner on Strava. If you want to replicate this ride, it is incredible. Because as we're riding through San Marcos and the older part of town on top, and then we get on a highway, but it's got plenty of shoulder, uh, did not feel sketchy. Did not feel too freaked out. And then we're riding along and we get to this road that is called Fulton Ranch Road. And it was insane. It looks like a relatively new road, but it's cut through this huge ranch. And there's nothing there except this road. So there's like a car like every 10 minutes or so. And it's asphalt. And... It's just this rolling up and down and up and down and side to side and just so great. And Kai and I were talking later. And he said, you know what this world would be good for? And I said, I know exactly what you're about to say. Time trials. And he's like, yeah. So I went back later and measured it on Strava. It's nine miles long each way. 
of very safe road, except for this hill on it that is called Manmaker Hill. <laughs> and on the downhill, I hit 42 miles per hour and my it's got a curve in it, right? So I'm trying to be careful and I've never ridden down this hill before. Kai bombed down it a little bit faster than me. And it's sketchy because I've never ridden down it before. I don't know what it's going to do. I can't see around the turn. So I'm riding upright to catch as much wind as possible to give my brakes on my bike a a break and they're screaming and you know gravel bikes don't have disc brakes on them like uh like mountain bikes do you look at the difference between my my canyon neuron and my uh gravel bike brakes gravel bike brakes look like paper clips so yeah i'm trying to act so i'm actually trying to go down this hill as cautiously as i can <laughs> and not die on this thing and I still hit 42 and a half miles per hour. I hit 42. Kai hit 42 and a half miles per hour. That's how steep this thing was. This is the same one, 17% grade, but going out, you know, going downhill into the, into the Blanco River Basin. And, oh, the scenery is just, oh, you can just see forever in all oh, the hill country off in the distance to the west. And, yeah, the river in the bottom. And we get down there and we cross over the river like several times going around Wimberley. And Wimberley is a destination town where, like, at Christmas, they over-decorate everything. Fredericksburg does the same thing. And it gets real touristy, and people just go from Austin and San Antonio out into the hill country to just visit these small Texas towns that really overdo it in the, uh, over the holidays. All right, so we've been to Wimberley a bunch uh, during Christmas. But Emily wanted to check out Wimberley. We told her as, uh, as we were riding through it, and we met her at the gas station. We said, hey... The old downtown of Wimberley that we usually go to for Christmas, it's actually, it's right behind us down this road. You got to go check it out. And she was like, what? Oh, I totally want to see that. I want to visit some stores and, and da, da, da. Now she's got River with her in the truck, right? And I think she was going to park in the shade, crack the windows, just run in and out of some places, leave the car running, you know, so the AC's running stuff like that. So we're riding back through Wimberley and Emily's kind of following us because it's pretty soon after Wimberley when we leave. That's what she was going to do. She was going to follow us to Manmaker Hill because that's right outside of Wimberley and then follow us up it to see this, this hill, which she took pictures of. It's insane looking. And the, uh, it looks like a wall that somebody painted a road on it. <laughs> so it's like, it's like out of a uh, Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner. And the funny thing, which is actually scary at first, is we're riding down a shaded, uh, not the main street of Wimberley, but like a side street of the downtown area. But it's busy, but not like crazy busy. And I can hear this faint, river, river, river. Is somebody calling my dog? And I turn my head around and I see this giant black German shepherd. It looks like a horse, like galloping down the street in the middle of a town that he's not, he doesn't live in. And I'm like, oh, shit. And so I stopped the bike. There was a truck coming at, at us, an F-150, and I blocked the street and put my hand up and said, hold on, hold on. And then River came running up to me, and Emily had parked the truck and was running down the street after him, and another girl was too, then somebody else came, and we all kind of, we thought we were going to have to tackle him, but he just came right up to me. And what had happened was uh, Emily's really careful, uh, 
we all are, you know, with dogs and cars and only crack the window so they can't get out and stuff. And what we figure happened was his paw pressed on the window uh, switch enough and uh, to roll down the window itself. And on a Dodge Ram, it'll the back windows roll all the way down. And he just jumped straight out of the car and his his lip was cut on his chin. This girl that saw it happen said he landed right on his face. <laughs> and then... And I'm laughing now only because he's fine and it's okay, but it could have been so, so much worse. And um, so then after that, we put the child locks on the window so that River can't uh, do that again from the back seat. And, oh my gosh, that was absolutely crazy. And Kai and I took a breather for a minute and we're like, oh, geez, wow, that was uh, a little much right now. And we tease Emily about it, about her throwing River out the window. <laughs> which she only slightly takes in stride. She's, she's such a dog person that uh, we got to laugh about it because everything ended up okay. But, oh, I forgot, at the gas station, Kai, there's a taco shop. Uh, the German Hill Country is actually, you know, it's half Mexico, half German, right? Because Texas used to be part of Mexico, and, but with all these German settlers. And what a lot of people don't know is Tejano music, which is Mexican music it's like a texan south texan music that has an oompa sound to it it's actually a blend of german oompa music with mexican influence so if you ever listen to tejano music listen for that german oompa band sound mixed in with it and that's a really cool thing to know because you can realize that that is the combination of german and mexican and it makes total sense to be in a German town in the hill country and there's a taco shop <laughs> and you get burritos, whatever, you know, and very common actually in that area. It's fantastic across, across most of Texas, actually. But I remember when I lived in Southern California, San Diego, the Mexican music there was not like the Mexican music in Texas because they don't have the German uh, influence in Southern California like we do in Texas. There are old buildings in the German hill country, the Texas hill country, that still have German signs, Wellacommon. Um, I'm trying to think of all the different stuff. Like the bathrooms are in German because a lot of people grew up there uh, speaking German. It's pretty much gone now, like that influence, like the natives, the German communities. Like my great-grandmother grew up in a German town, New Ulm, Minnesota, and she didn't speak English till she was 16. Even though she was born in Minnesota, because the German towns were so German. So she had a German accent. Uh, my great-grandmother did. I remember when I was a little kid. But she was not from Germany. She was from Minnesota. So Texas has like the same thing. Sorry, I go off on these geographic interesting topics. But that's actually what I do for a job. And the reason I do it for a job is because I find it so interesting. It's kind of a self-feeding circle there. I just find out that it's so interesting when you start figuring out how all these things interconnect and you kind of you kind of see the world in a different way when you know where all the influences are coming from uh like for example another thing is in once you hit the german hill country the fences are actually stone fences they don't do barbed wire fences like the rest of texas if it's you could tell you're in german influenced and settled countryside when they build stone fences instead of uh, fence post fences because that's what they do in germany there was even an apartment complex in San Marcos that looked like a German village house with the, the German trim to it. And everything. that's because we're on the edge of the German hill country. This is so cool. 
So yeah, when we were in Wembley, before River got thrown out the window by Emily, haha, the gas station we stopped at had picnic tables outside. We sat out there, talked with Emily for a little bit. That's where we told her, hey, this is the, the village, the town where uh, we used to go come for Christmas and stuff. And that was just really, really nice to be in such a cool little hill country town and that little stop there. So if you ever do this ride, that's where you stop. It's a diamond shamrock on the north side of town. Uh, it's all developed and stuff around there. It's real pretty. So then Emily followed us the rest of the way to Manmaker Hill. And Kai was able to climb it this time without paperboying it side to side. I looked at his Strava last time and there was all this side to side trying to climb up it. Um, and he said that he did that last time because he bonked because he didn't feel right for the ride last time. I was teasing him about it. And I said, well, I'm doing it. I'm totally paperboying this thing and I've got no shame to do it. <laughs> But Kai rode up the freaking thing straight with no side to side up it. And what's so cool, like it's on that ranch road with no traffic. So you can literally paperboy side to side it the whole way up uh, many, 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 many times uh, back and forth sideways to get to the top. And once we got to the top, I told Emily, hey, by the way, on this road on the way out, Kai pointed out to me that this is where the body farm is. So about halfway back from where we are right now, Manmaker Hill to where Fulton Road reaches the highway, where we turn off on the Fulton Ranch Road, uh, is a turn-in where you can, there's a visitor center and stuff, but the body farm is where they put cadavers, dead bodies, in all kinds of different situations to watch how they decompose and po I guess possibly to train like search and rescue dogs and also to study, yeah, like what happens when, uh, maybe animals too, but uh, when humans die um, how they actually decompose and so they know when they they study this and it's owned by texas state university i bet you they study it so that when they do find the body for real you know out in the desert or you know wherever i'm sure they put it in all kinds of different situations um they know like it, they can match it up with bodies that they study uh, and go oh it's been out here about three weeks or 10 years or you know whatever and, Oh, it was uh, somebody that died of a heart attack or somebody that died of dehydration or somebody that died of a broken leg or, you know, whatever. And however they do all that stuff. But anyway, it's really fascinating. And Emily, being a nurse, was like, what? The body farm? Because it's famous. Like, you hear about it around here. And I think different universities, different places have them around the country. And so she went by that uh, turned off from us and went to go check that out. Kai and I finished our ride, went back through campus, downhill, and he showed me where, it's called Bikini Hill, it's where everybody lays out um, on the side of a, of a grassy knoll right next to the river, the 72-degree um, San Marcos River. And that's on his way back to his, back to his apartment. And then he and I got back to the apartment. Emily was still driving around checking out Wimberley and the, and the, um, the body farm. And so we, Kai and I were there at his apartment for like maybe half an hour to 45 minutes, maybe a little bit longer before Emily showed up. So knowing that it was going to be that long, cause we talked to her on the phone, uh, we went and jumped in his apartment complex pool, which was really nice after a long hot ride. And oh yeah, we weren't filthy dirty, really filthy dirty because the ride from San Marcos to Wimberley, the ride that we took that day, and you can find on Strava, was all pavement, right? 
But what was so interesting was we're on gravel bikes and my gravel bike has air bars on it so I can do triathlon training on was the wider tires and the slack geometry on gravel bikes. Uh, Kai had made a comment about this too. Um, makes for riding in extreme uh, roads conditions with lots of vertical and tight turns, like fast downhill turns. Uh, and you don't know what the pavement's going to be like. Um, I don't know if I've... I can't remember the last time I've ridden my gravel bike as a road bike. And it's it's slightly slower than a road bike, but man, having the um, the beefier tires on that, and I ride semi-slicks. They're slick in the middle and they're knobby on the shoulders. Um, made for riding just unknown roads, what's coming up and crossing the rivers and such. Uh, it made it so nice. And also I have a suspension stem and I don't notice it unless I really hit something hard. That's the way you set up your suspension stem uh, with elastomers is you don't want to notice it unless until you hit something. So no give until you actually hit a bump. And then, and I rarely hit a bump, so I barely noticed it. And then also with gravel bikes, it's okay to have like a frame bag. And I have a half frame bag where I can still fit water bottles in the uh, bottle cages. And in that, I was able to carry like a frame pump and stuff. And they're aero. They actually make your bike a little bit faster to have a frame bag because it acts as like a centralized fairing to keep the wind straight uh, going over the bike. And then, you know, that 42 mile an hour downhill with the, with the turn in it, uh, GCN just did a video um, where they compared a 30, no, 26 width tire and a 35 and a 50, I think a 50, <laughs> uh, maybe it was a 38 and then a 50, uh, uh, with tires on the same bike uh, on downhills. And they found that on the downhills that I think they were definitely faster on the wider tires than the narrow tires. Cause it gives you confidence about leaning in the turns. And I was just having a blast, man. It was like so cool. So another shout out to gravel bikes for that. You can totally use them as road bikes. And in fact, um, if we had money, like a ton of extra money, we would buy Kai a dedicated road bike. But right now, I think we're just going to get a wheel set with um, road tires on it and look at the gearing on his uh, gravel bike. Or maybe not. I don't know. We'll see what we do. Anyway, we didn't get to go see El Rancho Sima, but we were within four miles of it. And then seeing the Blanco River was pretty great. So by the time we're all done with this, we grabbed lunch at a pizza place and sat outside with the river. And then we went back to our hotel and at the hotel, uh, we had two beds in the hotel and Kai and River laid down in one bed and Emily and I in the other bed and took a nap for like four hours. <laughs> uh, and the ride to Wimberling back was uh, almost three hours. And not riding the two days before that ride was really smart because I had nice fresh legs for all the hills and I ended up keeping up with Kai. I mean, he could have beat me in, in like a drop me at any time that he wanted, but I was not like a hindrance to him whatsoever. He, it was only on Manmaker Hill where he was waiting for me at the top. Everything else was, um, we were riding the same speed. And on occasion I would actually, I, I, uh, surprise him and I beat him on two hills at the very, very top. We we play this game all the time. Uh, who can get to the top of the hill first? He's always beating me, but then uh, I managed to sneak attack and get a couple hills in. So yeah, it was like really awesome. So we needed that nap. And when the nap was over and the pizza wore off, our plan was to go 
to this place where we saw the Blanco River last time. It has an easy public access, but it's kind of sketchy. And it's out on, it's, it's like east of town, kind of in the prairie a little bit. And it's just where uh, Old Road crosses, Old Bastrop Road crosses the Blanco River. And there's some gravel on the side of the shoulder. And you're not supposed to park there, but some people do. And it's kind of like locals. Um, just kind of get in the river right there. And it's definitely not university, you know, or anything like that. It's kind of old fashioned. I mean, it's the tiniest bit sketchy, but I don't know. Like it was, there's like some people, like two different families, like cooking on the, on the riverbank <laughs> right there. But anyway, there's some deep spots, uh, right in that area. And so we got in the river and there's, there's a, there's like shallows and deep spots and it's all rock and it's just really cool. There's a rope swing off this tree that right now you don't want to eat. Um, and we got in and we got river in with us. And that was super cute. Um, and some of the deeper parts we would get in and then river would come in and try to save us and pull us out of the water to the safer spots. It's very funny that he did that because here at our house with our swimming pool, he does not want to get in the pool. Um, he is not a water dog like Kona was our big black lab. Um, but it turns out he is a water dog uh, whenever it was all of us at, as a family in the river where it actually has like a gradual uh, get in kind of way. It's not like the big drop of a pool that kind of freaks him out. So that was our evening cool down was getting the Blanco River. It wasn't quite 72 degrees again because the San Marcos had joined it further upstream. But it was about 72 degrees. It's probably like 73, 74 degrees. So it felt really cold at first, but it was so hot outside and it was 5 o'clock at night. Um it was just wonderful. And then we went to a place to eat that allowed dogs on the back patio and it's called the rail yard. And I both would and would not recommend it. It's okay. It's, uh, I don't know. It's just kind of okay. <laughs> it's more of a bar with some food and, you know, but we need, if you've got a dog and your dog can be chill, then that's an okay place uh, because they allowed pets. That's what we Googled was that. And then we went back to the hotel, I think, and spent the night. And then in the morning, our plan was to get started a whole lot earlier, but we were wiped out and we got up and Kai was in a rush. Like, we got to go. We got to go. I got to get in my two hour bike ride from his coaching plan. And it's getting hotter by the minute. It's getting hotter by the minute. And we still need to swing by his apartment and pick up his mountain bike. And Oh, yeah, by the way, I got a triple rack on the back of my truck. I got a Kuat uh, bike rack. So we put on Emily's mountain bike, my mountain bike. And then we swung by Kai's place, picked up his mountain bike. And also for the road trip back and forth to uh, College Station to San Marcos, which is just over two hours, like two hours and 15 minutes. Um, I got that tonneau cover over the back of my truck, which ends up being awesome because you can just roll it open. And then you got all this space, you know, for wet stuff dry stuff, luggage, whatever, and then you roll it back or you can get one of those hard ones. And then, yeah, you've, uh, it's out of sight, out of, out of mind for thieves. You don't really worry about stuff so much back there because nobody can see it. It's not worth their time to try to break into it. They don't even know what's in there. And so we would keep like a lot of our luggage and bike equipment and stuff back in like bike pumps and whatever helmets and uh, bike gear, change of clothes, towels, flip-flops and stuff back there. And then, anyway, um, we picked up Kai's mountain bike at his apartment and then drove to Spring Lake Park. 
And Spring Lake Park is one of these many parks around San Marcos that for a town that small has a ton of parks that are kind of like designated uh, preserves. They're not very big, but there's a lot of them. And then the town's built up around them. So they have access points to these parks, like at multiple spots. And when we were riding around it, uh, well, we parked at the top, LBJ. Um, and LBJ, the president of the United States, President Johnson, was actually from Texas and went to Texas State. So they got a lot of LBJ stuff um, out there. They got a statue of LBJ on campus. So LBJ Drive or Street or whatever is at the top of this park. And this park is pretty much on the side of one of these slopes, right? And it's forested. And it was really cool um, that there was a little bit of parking right there. There's only like three or four parking spots. But um, we unloaded the bikes. Emily was going to hike with River on the trails while Kai and I biked. And then after a while, when we were done with our two hours of riding, then Emily was going to go mountain bike a little bit while we were cleaning up. And I was having a beer, two beers. (laughs) And anyway, we're riding around. And that's where I took video on Instagram of my canyon and of all the cactus and the it's a mix of, of a few sections, very few sections of a uh, smooth trail and then just like this rocky rubble. And that's limestone, whenever you see that, that I'm kicking around because as it's breaking off the side of the escarpment. And then the rocks that aren't loose are, um, they're not sharp like granite or um, obsidian or something like that um, or flint like the um, the rocks that are in the Flint Hills uh, where Unbound is and gives everybody all the flats, but they are the rocks that are embedded in the soil still are edgy, um, and you got to ride a little bit careful so that you don't slash uh, sidewall, but not that bad. They're not quite that sharp that you're guaranteed a slash, but the loose rubble and whatever was like so, and the and the edgy rocks was so different than what I'm used to riding around uh, College Station. You know, I had to remember how to ride it from all the races I did out in the hill country. And what was really cool is I'm riding like a 2.4-inch mountain bike tire on the front, and I think it's like a 2.3 on the back. They might both be 2.4s. Anyway, and then I, while I was getting my stuff ready to start biking, um, and Kai was like, come on, let's go, let's go, like that. And I was still putting on my shoes and stuff. I said, how about you air up my tires to make sure? And Kai rides really low air pressure because he's lighter. And so he aired up my tires, but <laughs> just barely. But it turned out to be just right. And I wasn't racing, so I'm not worried about dinging a rim because um, I'm not going at, like, crazy speeds. I'm just, like, pedaling around. And the um, Kai was going to do – he was going to try to break the, the fastest known time for doing four laps of the park in two hours. And he got close. But I think he, as he realized he was off pace, he kind of backed off and just um, just enjoyed the ride anyway, period, and just turned it into a workout. And the coolest thing, and a pro tip for mountain biking, is with the lower tire pressure, the tubeless tires, it is just so awesome riding over rough stuff. Because with, when you ride lower pressure, your tires are softer, and they don't fight against a rock so much Uh so when a rock would cut a firmer tire because the tire's fighting back, so a sharp rock actually can cut it, a softer tire because of lower air pressure kind of gives more, and that eliminates the risk of 
sidewall cuts and tire punctures way more than you would think. It's, it's pretty cool. And because Kai had kind of underflated my tires a little, a couple PSI lower. And we're talking, it's so crazy how low mountain bike PSI is. It's like, I was probably riding at 20 PSI front and back. And usually I ride like 22 front, 25 rear, maybe 30 rear, 25 front, kind of depends. And, and still that, those numbers sound insane compared to 10, 15 years ago on road bikes. We're riding 120 PSI. But um, when, the, when the trail is jaggedy and, and rough, jaggedy is a word, um, the lower – you would think that low PSI would just like slow you down so much. But it doesn't. The tire like deforms to fit the trail. So instead of bouncing up and down on the trail, you just ride smooth over it. It's so cool. And so I was just having the time of my life because I haven't mountain biked in a couple months now. It's been so hot that the mountain bike trails are too hot around here and road biking is actually uh, more of a breeze. But this park, if you ever go to Spring Lake Park, and in future shows, I'm going to review different parks that we go to. Spring Lake Park is almost entirely shaded. It's got cypress, not some, what are they called? Oh, I can't remember, but they look like cypress trees. Cedar trees. Cedar trees um, and maybe like oak and stuff, pin oak and whatever. Uh, cedar trees. So it creates a tree canopy. And so you're under this tree canopy the entire time. So you're like in the shade, like almost this entire time. So it was nowhere near as bad as it could have been because when we finished in one section where there was a little bit of open trail out in the full sun, oh my God, it was so hot. But in the shade, it actually wasn't that bad. Oh, and another geographic thing is there's an endangered species there. It's a cave salamander maybe. And it's it's a, called a blind salamander. And I'm guessing I'd have to Google it. If it's a cave salamander. Um, and therefore it lives in the darkness and doesn't need light. Hold on. I can't take it. I got to Google this just to remind myself. Let's see. Texas blind salamander. It's in, I think it's endangered. So the preserve has areas to protect it, but you'll see a lot of stuff called salamander this and salamander that this part of the Texas hill country. Can the Texas blind salamander? Oh, okay. It has no eyes. It has only two small black dots under the skin. So if you Google it, it's the one that's pink. Because it probably doesn't need any uh, sun protection. So it's almost, it's probably like albino and lives in the water underground in the cave system. Because along with the escarpments, the water, when it does get penetrate the hills, you know, it creates caves. So there's a whole lot of caves in that part of Texas. What's funny is even me, you know, when I came to Texas and a long time living in Texas, I thought that like, except for East Texas where it's, well, so East Texas itself is just thick pine forest. And then it turns into prairie, and then people just think it turns into desert. Well, Texas has, like, really cool geography and really cool things like caves and waterfalls and spring-fed rivers and all this stuff <laughs> that other parts of the country has, too. Um, it's pretty epic. Oh, and then, you know, like, the longest coastline, except for maybe California. Maybe it's as long. I don't remember. Um, but it's just that it's a billion freaking degrees in the summer. That's the only downside. But aside from that, you know— it's actually a really cool place. So Kai and I finish up the um, mountain biking at Spring Lake Park. And it was really enjoyable that there was all these different entrances to it. So you could park at different places. The one at the bottom of the hill actually has a bathroom. And oh, there's a video of the Texas Blind Salamander. That's cool. And has way more parking spots than the top the LBJ. But being that it was tree-covered and on the side of a slope, and I'd never been there before... I did the thing where I took a photo. This is a pro tip, by the way. 
you're going someplace you've never been before. And there's going to be trails and roads and all kinds of crazy stuff. And there's a good chance that you can get lost and you'd be surprised how fast you can get lost if you can't see because you're in a forest. Then, you know, they had an app to download the park system, the trail system. But actually, when you get down into valleys and stuff, you don't have a good cell signal. Take a photo of the map that's posted at the entrance of things. So I took photos and texted it to everybody. So we had a photo of the trails and the names of the trails. So when you actually hit a named trail and a trail intersection with two named trails, then you could actually figure out where you are. And that really helped a lot. And I was riding with my old Garmin Phoenix 5 as my bike computer because my newest real bike computer is a Garmin 520. And that's pretty old. And so the battery life is like an hour or two, I think at mo- maybe three hours before it dies. And um, the money towards the new fancy bike computer that a pro would need uh, went to Kai. So Kai's got a Garmin 830 or something, <laughs> 840. It's like really nice. And I'm just reusing old devices. And I have a Phoenix 5, which still is holding up really great. That's an overbuilt watch. It's fantastic. And then I also have a Garmin 945, uh, you know, the triathlete watch that's the lightweight plasticky watch that's super expensive and like, super hardcore, everything that it can do, it's just not super tough because it's made to be lightweight, unlike the Phoenix. And the screen on that, I noticed over the past couple months, it started getting worse and worse around the edges. And I finally Googled it. And you know, it turns out the screen was peeling away. And I went to a, a Garmin forum and they said, um, yeah, send it in. And other people said, send it in and Garmin will send you a refurb. And it took... Less than a week, actually, for me to send it in. And as soon as they got it, they sent me the refurb watch, uh, brand new, because it's a known problem, I think. And I thought that maybe I'd have to like fight with them over it, you know, send them photos of the screen being bad. No, they were just like, just send it in. Uh, we'll send you a new one, a new, a new, new to you used one. And so that was pretty cool. And, uh, but that was not back yet. So I was stuck with the uh, Phoenix. I'm not stuck with it. It's a cool watch, but it's older. And I was using the mapping feature on that. The thing with the Phoenix is um, it shows a map of your, you know, wherever you went, but it does not show other things, right? It only shows like the line of where you went. So there's no reference to the map. There's no topo lines, no other streets, no nothing. It's just where you went. And that's kind of funny. (laughs) It's helpful for sure. Because I can track back, I can see where I've been before, you know, and I can kind of look at it and compare it to the the map that I'm looking at on the poster on the at the trailhead, and see, you know, kind of match it up and go, okay, I still got these other trails. Where the Garmin nine nine forty five and beyond easily, maybe even nine thirty five, has um, trails in it, so you can see the trail system where you were. Uh, where you are, uh, you can see the hill terrain and stuff like that. And, uh, so it's way better, but I didn't have that. And, uh, but it did show up when I got back, we got back to tech, back to uh, college station on Sunday night. Uh, it was, uh, in the mailbox, the refurb. So yeah, Kai and I got back to the car and then Emily, uh, now we had the dog and Emily went for a mountain bike ride, uh, for a little bit and then came back while Kai and I were cleaning up. Then we went to Kai's apartment because we also needed to check out of our hotel that morning, Sunday morning. And so we had everything in the truck. 
and we couldn't go back to the hotel because we'd already checked out. We forgot. We left some ice cream in the refrigerator there. It's really frustrating. But uh, we went to Kai's apartment and showered there and got our stuff together. And Kai's girlfriend showed up. And did we have lunch with her? Yeah, we went to Firehouse Subs. I-35 runs straight through San Marcos up and down there. So we went south on I-35 to Firehouse Subs. And then we were going to go to like Target or something like that and get Kai a little bit more knickknacks for his apartment. But we just really didn't have time anymore. But Emily did go into HEB, which is the – they all went into HEB, and I stayed in the car with River, um, which is uh, the big grocery store chain in Texas. And it's really funny. It's Howard E. Butts <laughs> is what HEB stands for. As Kai likes to say, he and his friends, they call it Howard E. Buckaroos is what HEB stands for. Um, Great, great grocery store chain in Texas, and I think founded in San Antonio. But then we all went back to Kai's apartment, unloaded the groceries, and by then it was getting close to 4 o'clock, I think. And Emily and I loaded up in the car with River and our bikes and then headed east to College Station. We go through Bastrop on the way to uh, College Station, which is real pretty. It's called the Lost Pines. It's pine forest, a pocket of pine forest, geographically speaking, which is interesting, that it's actually in a basin that's sandy, and pine trees love sand. And it's just this weird geographic localized feature where there's this big sandy basin in that area, and there's just this massive forest, pine forest, with state park and everything that's all by itself, not connected to any other pine forest, and that's why it's called the Lost Pines. So if you're going through Bastrop and you see Lost Pines this, Lost Pines that, that's why it's called that. And drove through there and got back to College Station and unloaded everything. I hopped in the pool, which now I'm calling the Little Blanco. (laughs) So Blanco in Spanish is white. And I could see why they call it the White River because um, in the hill country, limestone is kind of white. And as water penetrates and filters through the lime, limestone acts like a big filter. And so it cleans the water. So the water tends to be kind of bluish white naturally. Um, it's very uh, Caribbean, Bahamas kind of looking, Mediterranean looking, the water, uh, if it's gone through the, the limestone. And it makes the, the river bottom, at least, is white with the limestone. And um, that's part why they call it the Blanco River. And our swimming pool is blue with the white, you know, plaster bottom. So I call it a little Blanco. And hopped in the pool and cooled down from that hot drive. The heat here is insane. And unpacked about half our stuff. And then that was Sunday night and then last night. And then this morning got up and got a little bit of a late start. Yeah, kind of a majorly late start. And then um, ran with River because I haven't been running in a few days. And I posted a video of that. Um, In comparison to where we just were, it was really flat because we're out in the prairie east of the hill country. But the prairie still has... Uh, good rolling hills to it, just nothing like uh, the hill country. And it's nowhere near as flat as like right along the edge of the Texas Gulf Coast where Houston, Corpus Christi, down the South Padre Island, Harlingen, Brownsville, that whole coastline is like super, super flat. It's like flatter than, definitely flatter than Kansas. <laughs> I mean, it is flat, 100% flat. So anyway, yeah, we had a really good time going to San Marcos. Hopefully that gives you an idea of some things to do there. There's way more stuff to do there. And we're talking about moving our RV down there. 
because you got to put it somewhere. Might as well put it there. And then we can have a quote-unquote cabin in the hill country, <laughs> even though it'll be on the flat side uh, east of town where the, the rivers come out and they're nice and cool because there's RV parks like out there uh, that have river access. And uh, maybe though it won't float away, hopefully, if it floods, um, which it could easily do. And then we'll have a place to stay um, if we go visit Kai because it cost us two nights of a hotel, an expensive hotel to bring a dog. And then we're living out of the car and everything. So if we just move the RV down there and have it there, then we could have a place to uh, stay at when we come visit, like once a month. And Kai could have a place uh, to get away from his apartment and his roommate and stuff and maybe go stay on the river a little bit. Sounds, sounds like a great plan. We'll see. But in future episodes, we're going to do more San Marcos stuff and... I'll try to do a different ride like Kai today went and did the breakfast ride in Austin, which is once a month. And it's police escorted, leaves Austin, Congress Avenue, downtown and goes west, I think, out into the hill country. And then back. Austin's the same thing. Austin's on the edge of the hill country. So San Antonio, oh, I said that earlier, San Antonio, San Marcos, Braunfels, Austin are all the edge of the hill country. It's very much like the same idea as what happens in Colorado with the towns along the edge of the front range. Um, it's easier to have a city where it's flat and then you're right up next to the mountains where it's beautiful and there's all this cool stuff to do up there. But then you can live down where it's easier to build and less expensive down in like Denver or Boulder. Which reminds me, as we wrap this part up, uh, I've started calling San Marcos uh, Durango, Texas. <laughs> It's talking to some other people that have been, a lot of people in Texas have been to Durango. We're like, dude, San Marcos is like the hidden jewel of Texas. It's a university town, but it's pretty small. And it has all this cool stuff to, to do there, but not that many people live there. And it's got epic cycling, like right outside the city limits. It's just, just like Durango. And a river runs through it, like Durango. And like Austin. Okay, that's it. I'll be right back. All right, that's a show. Next episode, we're going to have the women's pro race from Kona. It's going to be awesome. Talk about all the big things and little things that went down. I've already got a whole bunch of training log recorded. We'll talk a little bit about how I managed to put down 350 calories per hour for a four-hour ride. So some fueling tricks for you that is insanely cheap, along with hydration, which is insanely, insanely cheap as well. We're trying to convert Kai's gravel bike into a road bike. Well, kind of both, you know, like what do you do so that you can use it either or. So maybe that's some new wheels and some different gearing. It's harder than you think. And all kinds of other insights and all the cool ins and outs of the triathlon training lifestyle and news. All right. See y'all next episode.
Hey!